Welcome to the School Meal Marketing Podcast, produced by Dunk Tank Marketing. I'm your host and Chief Dunker, Dave Palmer. For more than a decade, we've worked with school nutrition programs in Southern California to boost participation, engagement, and awareness with students, staff, and families. We've learned a ton and met some amazing people whose stories we want to share, along with some tips, insights, and lessons we've learned about how to change the face of school nutrition. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and even how we can help you or your district, visit us at dunktankmarketing.com and look for the School Nutrition tab. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And some five-star reviews would also help if you're so inclined. Today's guest is Chef Patrick Garmon, the Associate Director of Culinary Education and Training with the Institute of Child Nutrition. He's also the host of the iBytes podcast, which I highly recommend. Chef Patrick has a rich career history in food service. He trained at the Institute of Culinary Education in New York City, has been an executive chef in restaurant, catering, and educational settings, and served for five years as the child nutrition director for the Ellensburg School District in Washington State. We had a wide-ranging talk about the amazing resources that the Institute provides at no cost for schools across the country as well as Chef Patrick's career path and why school nutrition is a great and too often overlooked path for culinary professionals. And if you watch the TV show The Bear, we also touch on that and the changing culture of food service. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Chef Patrick Garmang on the School Meal Marketing Podcast. Chef Patrick, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for talking about all the stuff that you're doing. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Dave. Thank you so much for having me today. We had, I had a great time talking with you before when we were kind of prepping on this sort of stuff. I was like, this is going to be a fun one. It's going to be a lot of good stuff to get into. So I wanted to start off really is just give me a quick overview of Institute of Child Nutrition, what sort of things the Institute is doing, and then your role there. And, and we can get into some of the cool stuff that you're working on right now. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dave. So the Institute of Child Nutrition is the only federally funded institute that provides training, technical assistance research and resources for child nutrition professionals in the field. Everything that we do is 100% free to our end users. We are funded directly through by USDA through grants and cooperative agreements. So the work that we put out, you can trust that it has the stamp of approval of USDA. So that's a really nice thing to be able to rely on for our users. We have a multitude of different facets in which we operate. I'll try to hit the high notes on what we do, starting <laughs> with our applied research division, and then taking it through more of our training and resources pieces. So our applied research division is housed at the University of Southern Mississippi, which is in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And the applied research division does a lot of formative research around the roles and responsibilities of child nutrition professionals. So our CKS, competency knowledge skills resources, are huge for operators to be able to access. We have CKSs for what we call child nutrition technicians. So that's your, your frontline employees, your cashiers, your cooks, your bakers, those folks. We have them set up for managers. We have it set up for directors. We're currently finalizing resource on for chefs in school nutrition, which is really cool. And then there's also CKS for state directors. And we do have some stuff in there for CACFP as well. Those tools are huge because you can go in and utilize those to understand, let's just take manager, for example, what a manager's baseline level of knowledge should be coming into a program. 
as a new hire and then what should be as they've been integrated in the program for a while and learn new things. So you get all this competencies, knowledge, and skill statements that you can then use to create job statements. You can put together your, your roster of different job duties, responsibilities, all those things that can really help a director manage their staff more efficiently and understand what those national standards are. Because as we know, even though we have our professional standards or USDA, how local districts interpret the nomenclature role responsibility of different job titles can be different. So this kind of helps set up a national standard. They also have the KPIs, which is your key performance indicator resources to help understand where your program's at with the budget and balance all those things out. So really good, interesting stuff going on there. I really encourage people to check out our Applied Research Division resources. There's a lot of great tools, templates, and, and research that's gone in there as well. We also have our archives, which the Institute houses the only, at least to my knowledge, archives in the nation that collects the history of child nutrition programs around the nation. So we've got a wide variety of different resources there. We collect oral histories from the pioneers and leaders in child nutrition to reflect back upon their time within their programs and the journey really that happens and the growth as these programs continue to evolve. You know, the way it started when it was first signed into law by Truman up to now, I mean, the program's shifted several times and, and grown substantially. So those are kind of two of our divisions that folks don't necessarily know a lot about. They might be more familiar with our education and training or culinary division. So our education and training division offers training through three different modalities. We have face-to-face trainings. We've got VILTS, which are virtual instructor-led trainings, where we have a live instructor via the computer pipe into your home to be able to, or your office or wherever you're taking it, to be able to lead you through these trainings. So you'll have cohorts from all across the country, which is a great way to network, learn, get that real field training without having to leave your office. A lot of times travel is a big barrier for folks, whether it's they don't like to travel, the districts have restricted travel, whatever, it makes training a lot more accessible. And then we have our e-learn or iLearn system. Sorry, we rebranded in the last year and I'm still trying to catch up with it, (laughs) but it's iLearn and that's our online trainings that are available. And I believe we have close to 90, if not more online trainings available through that program. Again, all free, which you can make sure professional standards credits met through that. And we also host our webinars on there as well, once those have been done being live. So we've got I believe three webinars now. We've added a CACFP webinar recently, which is really cool. And then monthly, we have our STAR webinar, which is intended for operators and managers. And then we have the CICN webinar, which talks about the Culinary Institute of Child Nutrition and dives into more culinary-based stuff. So that's the branch I oversee is the Culinary Institute. And I can really speak to a lot of what's going on there more than I can in some of the other branches. But I do know that darn near every facet of child nutrition is being touched by education and training branch, whether it's leadership, meal pattern, food safety, you name it, they're they're out there on the the front lines, gathering the information from operators to identify best practices, what's being implemented in the field, bringing that back and putting it into resources that are available to our end users free to really identify the best way to implement policy changes, regulation changes, all that stuff. You're answering some of my questions of like within those 90 training segments. Yeah. You know, it sounds like that it is really covering a massive, a broad spectrum of everything from sort of technical to practical implementation of all those things across the board. Yeah, absolutely. And one of our biggest online courses now, I say biggest in terms of usership is we have civil rights on there now. And civil rights, as we all know, is an annual requirement. As a former director, I can tell you 
when you know you start your summer back to school or your summer kickoff back to school training with your staff, a lot of times we try to incorporate our civil rights then. And civil rights is a very, very critical component of what we do. And it's very important, but sometimes it can be a little rote because we want to be very specific in what's being said. And because of that, it can kind of suck the energy out of the room a little bit, right? So some directors are great and very inventive and creative and, and turn it into a very fun training. Others don't necessarily have that imagination. So being able to turn your staff loose to take our courses online and then be able to use that time for more engaging interaction might be beneficial if getting up and doing that just kind of is not as exciting for your staff hearing the director give the same kind of key points every year. So that's one that's there. But I mean, you name it, we got everything in there from culinary to meal patterns to food safety. Um, there's some great courses in there on staff management, having difficult conversations, dealing with difficult people. You know, a lot of times the things folks are looking to us for, although they love and appreciate a lot of our technical stuff, they also lean on their state agencies for those things a lot of times. So they're coming to us for more of those soft skills, managerial components. So we're excited yeah. to be able to provide those. Talking earlier, I talked with your colleague, Danielle Hunter, yesterday, who's doing a lot of some of that training stuff. And so I'm excited to, to be able to get her on here at some point too, to really talk about that critical soft skill management, how conflict, interpersonal conflict, staff conflict, and, and that it's not all crisis, that it really is just about having these, you know, really forward conversations that are respectful and help build everybody that that's a, a real key component. So yeah, Dr. Barrett's great in that field. And she and I, I think kind of subscribe to the same philosophy that a lot of those management pieces have to, they really drill down to communication and having difficult conversations and, and being okay having those as long as they're respectful and, and folks are coming away feeling heard and validated. But sometimes it's our own fear, sometimes having those conversations with staff get in the way of having a productive conversation because we start ruminating about their response or we have the whole conversation in our head before it's even had sometimes. So I'm learning to get comfortable in uncomfortable situations, I think is, is really important for a leader to be able to start leading effectively and, and just having open, honest communication. People shouldn't be coming into their annual or quarterly reviews and being surprised with some result that they didn't know they're doing their job wrong, right? So we want to start building some of that out because as we look at some of the staffing issues that are presented around the country, I think a lot of them can be fixed through good management. Honestly, we're able to retain our staff when you have a high retention rate and you have happy staff. It helps with recruiting. If you're always in the state of crisis, we're always having to hire because people are unsatisfied at work. There's probably a reason for it. They're not getting trained right. They're not being communicated with. They don't feel valued. So we need to really start identifying how we can do better as leaders in, in that realm. And I, one of the things that we talked about too was these are communication practices and cultural practices, but practice sort of also infers you're going to get it wrong. Hundred percent. You're going to fumble through the same the same way. Any of your technical skills, you got you're getting you are wrong a thousand times before you really master it. But, Absolutely. That that is an encouragement, not so much a like, oh my gosh, I made one mistake. I, I've got to shift back the way I communicate. No, keep keep pushing forward. So yeah, no, I mean, I uh, an acronym I learned the last couple of years. I'm not even sure where I got it from at this point. But the word fail is first attempt in learning, and that kind of just stuck with me and. Uh, it allows that space to know that like when we try something, it's not always going to go right. But as long as we learn from it and change behaviors and, and apply what we learn, then, uh, then we're going to succeed eventually. Absolutely. Tell me more about what you're doing with the culinary 
division right now and some of those things. You've got a ton going on. Yeah. So the culinary division is, we do have a lot going on. So the culinary division got spun up in 2018 and the first year or so, it's really spending time putting together the infrastructure, looking and examining it, how we could be most effective to folks in the field. And we had a bunch of great ideas and proposals and plans laid out, curriculum in development, and then the pandemic hit. And the way all of us began to interact, learn, experiment with different types of learning, experiential learning processes, we kind of had to go back to the drawing board and really start focusing in on the fact that travel had become a bigger challenge for folks. So coming to the Institute for a week-long in-depth hands-on training may not be the right approach anymore. Getting out to operators in the field might be the better way to do it or using VILTs to be able to have bigger output. So we really started breaking down everything we were doing and putting it into small digestible formats. So the first thing that we launched in terms of training, and we were, were so grateful to the John C. Stalker Institute in Boston for allowing us to adopt their training is um, they call it back to basics. We renamed it into menus of flavor. And for us, we follow some of the things that they did, but we've incorporated as well a component that we call culinary basics which goes over to me the, the foundational components that every frontline staff member that's even working in a kitchen should understand before they even touch a knife or anything. And so we go over how to read and utilize a standardized recipe. A lot of folks don't understand how to read those recipes. So understand the components, why they're there, how to utilize those is important. Weights and volume. To me, weight and volume should be mandated annually, just the same way civil rights is, because the way our programs operate and we serve things in quarter cup, half cup, full cup, ounce equivalents, all these different components that are very confusing mathematically to a lot of folks. And you get things inverted or a lot of times getting folks to realize there is a difference between weight and volume and how they apply is really critical. And then finally, one of the other components of that is mise en place, understanding how to set up your, your workflow, not just for the day, but for the week and the month and, and, and looking at how you can be more efficient in the kitchen setting yourself up with good routines and good work habits. It reduces the stress on the body. I mean, it's been documented that a school nutrition cook can take anywhere between 14,000 and 20,000 steps in a day. A lot of that can be minimized by proper planning, not going and gathering things one at a time, using our cards and gathering things. So anyway, we, we go through that. I can get off on a whole tangent on mise en place. <laughs> we use that also as a foil in terms of teaching different global cuisine. So we have one that focuses on Mediterranean, one on Latin fusion, and one on East and Southeast Asian cuisine. So those are great four-hour trainings, really useful as like a good refresher, back-to-school training, kind of a kickoff or mid-year, like, hey, we're noticing we got some issues with compliance. So maybe it's a good time to bring this in and also start talking about maybe how we can start adapting our menus to be more inclusive moving forward. That's just one of the training options. We're also going to be releasing, hopefully in the next few months, I believe there's seven or eight standalone trainings that average from anywhere between two to six hours, and they go over a variety of different things. So we have one that's just focused on culinary keystones, so we call it. So it's like that culinary basics, but it's, it's more in-depth. It's a longer training. We have flavor profiles. We have labs on maybe alternate cooking, grain cookery bringing in produce and how to properly cook it, prepare it using your machines, all those kinds of things. Yeah. So I mean, those are just a few of those different trainings. The one I'm really excited about right now is training, especially with being able to provide more accessibility to operators in the field. It's called Culinary Quick Bites. So we launched the first, I believe, 13 of them 
a few months ago. The next set should be up here in the next day or two. And those trainings focus on a specific skill set, and they're 15 minutes in length. And it's facilitator led by the on-site food production lead, manager, director. You know, again, every district has slightly different nomenclatures for overseas who oversees uh, food production. But the basis of it is, is that there's talking points for whoever's facilitating the training to kind of go over with the staff. Then there's an embedded video that goes over the specific skill set. There's also an infographic that can that then has visual cues on how to do the thing that we're talking about. And then there's a short activity at the end. So the first phase is all knife skills. So there's, I believe there's somewhere in the ballpark of 20 to 30 knife skill trainings. The first five, we encourage folks to take before they take the others and they go into knife care, safety, how to keep a sharp blade, types of knives, that kind of stuff. And then as we move into those, the knife skills focus on specific items. So how to cut a pineapple. The entire training is just on that, right? So a good way to introduce that training, incorporate it into your production schedule is if you know you're going to be serving pineapple on your menu the next day or two days down the road, bring in your staff, do some knife skills training, have them break down all the pineapple, right? So they're getting that practice, they're getting that repetition, and then you can use that product on your service line. So you've prepped, you've trained, you've reinforced, and you've done it all without having to send your staff anywhere, and they're able to get their professional standards, and they're able to start building their skill set. So with that, we've got a whole series on knife skills. We've got a small series on flavor development, a series on kitchen efficiency, so how to properly utilize your vertical choppers, how to properly set up for large-scale production in terms of kind of creating assembly line, you know, things like that. And then the final series, which we filmed, is focused on basic cooking techniques. So we go over how to brown ground meat. You know, it seems very basic, but some folks just, they don't understand that. They don't know how to do that. And if we're not browning the meat all the way and we're just kind of cooking it and kind of steaming it more or less, we're not developing flavor. And when we work in programs where we do have regulations that restrict the amount of sodium, fat, things that in the Western diet are perceptions of flavor. We need to use the food to draw out the natural flavors in there by using proper cooking practices. So there's those, those components. So those are kind of some of the, the immediate training that's school focused. Over on the CACFP side, we're actually developing eight four-hour standalone face-to-face hands-on training just for CACFP operators and speak to their needs and, and what they do in their program. So we're going to be piloting that down in Florida here in September. I'm very excited about that. And hopefully we'll have those released out by the beginning of somewhere in, in the early part of 2024. You're talking through all this. I'm like, oh my God, there's just an enormous amount of training that's available. But even when you talked about the quick bites, but your quick trainings, part of the things that we've talked about in the past is there are times that whether it's a director or a lead at a, at a school site or something like that, making these changes and hearing all these options can also be a little bit overwhelming, but you've talked yeah. a little bit about how do you take a step and what sort of things have you seen in working with schools to help them say, hey, this is not tackling everything at once. I'm going to plug another thing that we've worked on. So I think it's kind of a foundational piece. So we published um, in the last year, the USDA recipe standardization guide, which has been the first, there's been a formal methodology for writing standardized recipes for child nutrition programs. So I guess my jump off point for any director, manager, chef who's looking to start making these changes is go there and understand how to actually put together a standardized recipe in a way that is meaningful, useful, and is going to pass your administrative reviews, right? So 
That's kind of step one if you're starting to look down this path from the director level. Now, when you start going to implementation, my theory is start small, right? Pick one thing that you want to change. And it doesn't have to be a center of the plate item, right? It could be you're changing up your sides. It could be that you're going to start making scratch salad dressings. You know, it could be this this one small thing that you're able to control your nutrients through, get good flavor out to students and start delivering fresher, more high quality product. And once you get that down, then you introduce the next thing and the next thing. And you just kind of slowly build it and it, it will snowball faster than you can imagine if you're getting buy-in from your staff. That's another huge yep. component, right? Get the staff buy-in, have conversations with them. Don't talk at them, talk with them. Train them how to do the things that you are asking them to do. Don't just hand them a recipe and say, go for it, Tiger, you got this. They need some assistance. If it's something they've never done before, it's foreign to them. You can't just expect because they hold the title cook that they've actually been trained how to cook properly. A lot of our cooks in child nutrition, this is not all of them, I'm not trying to make a broad statement, but there's a faction of them that have never been formally trained how to cook. And they come in and they open boxes and they put the thing on sheet trays and they follow the manufacturer's directions on how to heat up product X or Y. And then they're handed a recipe with no formalized training or even less than formalized training on how to actually cook something at volume. They might be able to cook wonderful meals at home, but you scale four or eight meals to preparing a thousand meals. It's a totally different ball game. So we need to be able to support our folks, get them the training, get them the resources they need, get them the equipment they need in order to start making these changes because you can't expect someone to do something if they don't have the tools to do it. Speaking of knowing how to have the tools to do things and training, I want to go back a little bit and tell me about your career path as a chef and how you wound up here and what sort of things inspired you to pursue this and to to help bring all of that knowledge to other people. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So my original plan, I'll step back just a little bit, sorry. Originally, I, I served in the armed forces. I was in the National Guard and did some active duty National Guard stuff and realized I want to become an officer. So I would, left the active duty sides, remained a reservist, and um, started an ROTC program at a Central Washington University. During that, I, I sustained a back injury and my military career basically came to an end. So I needed to like really figure out what I was going to do next. And I've always enjoyed history of politics. I was like, well, I'm going to be a poli-sci major and um, go to law school and become a lawyer and fight constitutional law and all those good things. But in the background, as an odd job or you know making food money and rent money in college, worked in hospitality. And I really enjoyed the energy of kitchen. I enjoyed the energy of being around people who enjoyed serving people. You know, it's a different level of energy there and camaraderie that happens. It doesn't happen in other spaces necessarily. So I really enjoyed that. And as I was about to finish all my applications for law school and I'd had a couple in and had been accepted, I, I decided instead to jump on a plane with my friend and go to New York and go to culinary school. So I did that. I loved it. It was absolutely amazing. And while I was there, the university that I had gone to I'd worked in their catering department a bit and their chef at the time had quit. And they said, we'll wait a couple months for you to finish school and come back and hire you on. So right out of culinary school, I took over a kitchen, a catering kitchen at university and was able to implement a lot of different changes in there, go back to a lot of scratch base. When I got there, they they converted to a lot of processed stuff. And that's not how I choose to eat. That's not how I choose to serve people food. So we implemented a lot of changes there. And We did a lot of summer camps and a lot of volume feeding. And that's where I really got my feet wet in understanding 
how to do scaled volume feeding really effectively and make sure that things are fresh, they're consistent. Did I do it right all the time? Absolutely not, right? Again, we talked about that acronym FAIL, right? There was a lot of learning that happened during that process and a lot of growth, but I kind of looked at it from the standpoint that when I went to culinary school, I, you know, I, I of course wanted to go after James Beard Awards and Michelin stars and all those <laughs> things, but the pressure of student loans, both from culinary school and, and undergrad kind of started mounting and looking at, okay, this is a viable career option right now with a salary and benefits and all those great things. So, and it's a great chance to learn management. My theory was I'd rather learn the management components of working in hospitality early on than become proficient in, at the technical side without understanding how to manage people. Because I can always go back and learn. Culinary is always evolving. New techniques, new processes, new ways of looking at things are always evolving. So that piece is always there, but managing people is pretty, to do it effectively, it's pretty streamlined, right? Like you need to understand how to have conversations with people. You need to know how to treat people. You need to understand that taking someone into a walk-in freezer and screaming at them is not an appropriate way to manage a person. Coaching, mentoring, leading, those are the things that they need. So I want to pro, learn this. Pro skills. tip right here. Yeah. Pro tip, don't take someone into a freezer and yell at them. Yeah. You know, so really learning those components and that led me to other great opportunities in my career. So I was the food service director for the police academy in the state of Oregon through a food service management company. Got the amazing opportunity to open a restaurant for a lodge in Washington state, a fly fishing lodge, and ran that restaurant for a few years and got great acclaims and recognition. But at that time, I was also on the cusp of getting married and having children. And um, in fact, we opened the restaurant three weeks before our wedding dates. You know, of course, restaurants take forever to open and just kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. So after a couple of years, we realized that the restaurant lifestyle was not going to be sustainable if we wanted to have children, which we very much did. So I had the opportunity to apply for a food service director job at the local school district, not understanding anything about child nutrition, thinking this is going to be the easiest job on ever you know, on hers, my experience with, with child nutritious school lunch. And, you know, all you could think of at that time was big cookies and square pizzas and, you know, salads and in, in containers. And I was like, well, I can manage people doing that, you know, maybe put a little bit of a spin on it, but, you know, this will be easy. And then I started really understand the program once I got into it and I was hired and saw the impact and who we were feeding and why we were feeding. And it really shifted my entire mindset on why I had this job, what I wanted to do with this job and where I want to take the program we had. So in the time I was there, we made some pretty radical changes. We brought in salad bars. We, our, our base menu was 75% speed to scratch based where we we're making something, not just heating something up. You know, we were putting together components and, and making it all of our salads and sandwiches and so everything on that side was all scratch based. Do we still have some pizza lines and burgers? Yeah. But we started offering things that were a lot different. In K5, we took out, you know, things like chicken nuggets and hot dogs and replaced them with whole muscle chicken legs and, you know, things that were more nutrient dense, honestly, and, and really started expanding students' palates and they gravitated towards them pretty quickly. We started including more culturally appropriate dishes in what we we're doing. We have a large Hispanic population in the community I was in. So we we're making sure that we we're meeting that demographics needs as well, instead of just the Western diet needs, which increased participation. It really grew what we were doing there. So after about five years, I saw this ad that the Institute was hiring a chef. And although I loved what I was doing, I was kind of starting to feel a little bored because we'd done so much so fast, which 
is not a model I recommend, but it's just the way it happened. We had a small district, so you could be more nibble in the changes we made. But I was like, you know, I'd like to be able to apply what I've done here and help share that out and have a larger impact. So I, without even telling my wife, I submitted my resume and my, my cover letter and thinking there's no way that they'll ever get back to me. I'm just a director in a small district and I'll just take a chance. And lo and behold, um, I went through three interviews and got a phone call on our anniversary saying you've been, you've been selected and you have to move to Mississippi in the next six weeks if you want the job. So that was a fun anniversary conversation <laughs> to have. But no, I, I was super excited. My wife was on board and we went down and looked at houses. And a few weeks later, we were down in Mississippi and worked at the Institute. And it's just such an honor. To me, the Institute is its the highest level of being able to work in child nutrition outside of working at USDA. And the impact that we have on a daily basis is innumerable. The amount of people that we touch on the professional development side, you can hardly put a number behind that. But knowing that the end results of what they're doing to feed children, the millions of children eating in our programs every day, that impact is just, it's huge. So to be able to help programs provide more nutrient-dense, fresher, wholesome foods, the students change palates, change mindsets, change perceptions. Um, that was a huge draw for me. And you get to see, I mean, you're, you're working with a pretty broad spectrum, again, of districts. And so one of the things that I'm always curious about when you see things from all over the country is where do you see innovation happening? Where do you see it happening? Obviously, there are bigger districts with lots of resources or smaller districts that are doing things. What are some of the favorite things that you've seen? come about yeah. the last year. You know, it's interesting, like the innovation, it happens in all those pockets, right? So you can look at a large district like San Diego Unified, my friend Juan Zamorano is the chef down there. And they've been doing a lot of overnight cooking of subprimal cuts of meat in their combi ovens where they're able to cook and hold and be able to use the next day. You know, those are super economical cuts that are being able to utilize in things like carnitas and pulled pork sandwiches and, and menu items like that, that Traditionally, if you were to just buy it already pre-cooked, one, you can't control your sodium levels or your spice profiles or things like that most of the time, right? They've already been integrated with those with sodium spices and those things. So you have complete control over that for your nutritional analysis. Also, it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot less expensive to buy in these large cuts and cook them in your ovens overnight than to buy them in already pre-packaged, right? So there's a lot of different components with that. We're reducing waste stream. You're reducing overall packaging. You're reducing the caloric and sodium components because you're controlling those things. I mean, there's just so many benefits to so many. That's just like one small innovation, but innovation happens even in small pockets, right? It's looking at a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and rather than just slopping it together, putting it together nicely, cutting it, wrapping it, presenting it in a way that's visually appealing to students, right? I mean, Dan Juicy, I don't know if you know who he is. He shares stuff on Brigade all the time now about how they're doing these small things to enhance perception of food. That's one small thing you can do to enhance and draw students in versus covering something up in parchment paper and saying it's PB&J. It's not as meaningful when they can't see it. There's a guessing game that goes into it. Those sorts of things too, they, they are so, in the work that we do in communicating those sorts of stories, it's so effective at building trust and confidence in the program from students, from parents and families, and from other school staff, teachers that may not know what's going on to understand the process that's going into it. They see that intention. That's a real big part of building that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think being intentional about what you're doing builds that integrity of your program. And when people are able to see that and convey it, you're not going to get those Instagram photos of trays that we saw in 2015, 2016 that were less than appealing, right? Because 
you're doing the right things. You're not putting stuff out there that's not representing your brand well, you know? And I think a lot of times, one of the innovations I've been seeing a lot lately is, especially with smaller districts, is they're starting to brand what they're doing, right? They're not just the food service department or the child nutrition department. They're taking on logo names, they're branding what they're doing. They're being more engaging, more intentional. They're increasing their social media presence. They're working with community stakeholders more. I mean, the the numbers of interactions I'm seeing with farmers or growers coming in to schools, providing some sort of education, some sort of marketing, those pieces, they matter. You know, it matters where your food comes from. And the more we can educate students younger, the more they're going to grab onto these ideas earlier, right? I mean, everyone thought I was nuts when I put arugula mixed in on our salad bar. Like, oh, kids aren't going to eat that. Well, they weren't eating it in droves, right? But they were getting exposed to it and they were taking it. And I didn't learn about arugula until I was in my mid-20s, right? But now we got kindergartners that, you know, it's part of the mix. It's part of the rotation. Love it, like it, not my thing, whatever. At least they're getting exposed to it. And eventually, maybe they start gravitating towards it. It's not this foreign weed looking thing that's on their right. plate now. It's it's this delicious, you know, component. Very cool. I, I may have mentioned, I just saw a friend of mine who moved from San Diego up into rural California, sort of central California out by Yosemite. And he's doing a farm. They've got an organic farm and starting to work with their local school system. And they thought, okay, we're going to do lettuce. We're going to do like a, a salad mix sort of thing. And he said, we've been experimenting with microgreens. And the director was like, yep. We'll take them because they add flavor, they add texture, and it's that little thing. But now you've now instead of just your salad mix, you've got salad mix and greens, both coming from a local farm. You know who's growing it. You can literally yeah. meet them, you know, at the coffee shop and it, well, it really builds that connection. Yeah. I mean, you get into small rural communities, right? It could be that a student who's in your line, their parents worked on the farm that produced that food. Yeah. You know, you can't get any more of a connection than that, right? I mean Sometimes even in high school, it might be the students worked that morning on a farm or in a field or whatever, and we're part of the harvest that's going to be served later that week in your school. So, you know, drawing those connections is absolutely huge, honoring and respecting the foods that we're bringing into our programs, making sure they're nutrient dense, making sure that they represent how we want to be viewed as a department, as a program is, is absolutely huge. Thank you so much for doing this. I want to respect your time. I could talk with you for hours, which I think we already have uh, in some ways. But what sort of things like looking ahead, what are you, obviously you've got more training segments. I think you mentioned that you're looking to add to your team regionally, potentially. What else can people be able to look out for? And then how can they find you? How can they access all of the stuff you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, so we are looking to, we've got some, funding through USDA to start expanding our outreach. So currently there's two chefs that work on this program, myself and Chef Garrett Berdan. We're going to be adding three chefs in the next year, or we're going to try to stage them out regionally around the country to support those efforts. Their jobs will be not only to provide training, but also start adding some technical assistant components into what they're doing. So if a district is having trouble implementing a practice, they can get a hold of their regional chef and they can either go in or set up a Zoom or, you know, there'll be different ways that we can we can kind of help provide that assistance to help them get that ball rolling, right? We're not going to come in and rip your whole program apart until you're doing everything wrong. We're going to help you meet your end goals. And sometimes that's just one step at a time. On top of that, they will be speaking of, you know, trying to buy things regionally, locally, all those things. They'll have better information being in their region of who's doing what, how to help make connections, working with 
state agencies, state agriculture departments, and regional offices to get more information out there, look at things from a more regional standpoint than maybe you know the national standpoint that we're currently looking through. So trying to provide more in-depth help than maybe we have been able to before. On top of that, though, we're developing a week-long onboarding program for chefs coming into schools that goes over a lot of the policies, regulations, implementation components, as well as the soft skills that are really needed in child nutrition coming from restaurants. It's not always a hand in glove fit when some chefs come in, right? They need to understand that they're not getting in staff that has maybe high level of cookery experience. They need to train them up. They need to mentor. They need to coach. They need to be somebody that helps lead change, doesn't demand change. On top of that, we're also in the process of putting together a toolkit for many planners, directors, chefs on how to start incorporating more culturally important, culturally relevant foods into their programs, templates and tools on how to have those conversations with community members, how to host open houses to bring people in to talk about your program, talk about this is what our menu looks like now. How could it look better, represent your needs, your diversity better. So we're really excited about working on that. We have got consultants from around the country who are operators that are helping with that. So we got folks from the Northwest, East Coast, Mid-Atlantic, Southwest. So I mean, good representation and a lot of diversity in it. So we're really excited about that. And we're just continuously pumping out new projects. We got the podcast, the mix-up. We've got our webinar series, which happens monthly. Um, Chef Garrett leads that. It's an incredibly great series. This upcoming one, we're really honored to have Bertrand Weber from Minneapolis Public Schools and Chef Brandy Drebelis from the Chef Ann Foundation coming and talking about those foundational pieces into getting into scratch cooking. So if you're listening to this and interested, please check out that upcoming webinar. It'll be really great. And if you miss it, it'll be available on the iLearn through the DICM, through our learning management system. So you can check it out there as well. If you are interested in learning more about what we do, come to theicn.org. That's our web address. We have a landing page that's got a plethora of information. So check that out. On there, we also house the Child Nutrition Recipe Box, which is the USDA recipes. There's some really great new recipes that are coming out. Um, They were part of the, I believe, 21-22 USDA grants to the states on recipes that use regional different ingredients. Most of the ingredients, though, because I've seen a lot of the recipes, you can source nationally, but they're just maybe a little bit more indicative to that state. So, but they're great recipes and they follow the USDA recipe standardization guide, which that whole project was kind of a catalyst to say, let's get something formulative and standardized to help operators meet the criteria in developing recipes the right way. So we're really excited about that. And then we also have the child nutrition sharing site, which is where operators, state agencies share some of their resources that they've developed, tools, templates, et cetera. So there's a good chance if you think you need it, and you want to develop it, go check out the child nutrition sharing site first, because someone may have already done it and shared it. And that way you're not reinventing the wheel. You might just need to tweak it for your own needs. So really encourage folks to check out the child nutrition sharing site. Awesome. Thanks. I got one more chance. I don't want to go on and I don't know. No, you're fine. You're fine. Do you watch the bear? Yes. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I don't know how much you get asked about that. I love it. And being from Chicago, I it just makes yeah. me want Italian beef all the time. But right. I'm curious what, because you mentioned earlier, like, yeah, I want to get the James Beard Award and the Michelin star. And of course, that's playing into the plot line of season two. But I mean, what with the sort of chaotic atmosphere of the kitchen, how true to form is that? What's your experience in that? I think that it might be one of the more accurate 
representations of back of the house that I've seen in film. But of course, anybody who's worked in the industry or same as being in the military and watching a, a war movie, you're like, well, that's not right. And that's not right. Yeah. You know, so you, you can really pick it. You can pick a lot of things apart, you know, or, sure. um, but I think that there's, there's some components that are very, very true to form, true to nature and how things have happened in, in kitchens. I will say that some of those things have changed a lot over the years, looking at the fact that culinary and chefs, managers, owners of restaurants need to be more of leaders in terms of mentoring, coaching, and nurturing staff versus dog cussing and beating down staff and browbeating them into compliance and submission. I think some of those shifts are happening and it's very important that they happen in our industry. Part of the reason when we're talking about school nutrition as a potential career path for people in culinary, and that's where, you know, there's, I think the bear has been a great, it's a touch point for a lot of people, obviously, yeah. but to look at that and, and also say, like there was something in the new season where where he was talking to Sydney and saying, if you want a Michelin star, you have to care about everything more than anything. Yeah. Was the quote. And there's part of that that's like, wow, this is this driven, single-minded, inspirational thought. And then there's another part of that where, as you were saying, it's like, I still wanna I wanna have a relationship and a family and you know, these sorts of things. And so trying to balance those things out, but also finding the reward of Maybe it's not in a in a star, but it is in thousands and thousands of kids eating millions of meals that you know you've changed their life. And so, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you have to figure out what your why is, right? And what you're willing to sacrifice, what you're willing to give up. Is it a sacrifice or not for you? For some people, not having a family is not a sacrifice, and maybe that's the right mindset for them. But for me, I wasn't going to sacrifice that that option. At one point, I was, but then I met the right person, and that was no longer something that resonated with me. So my why is making sure that we can change the health outcomes of our nation. We live in a tumultuous society with a lot of division, but feeding and eating shouldn't be that. It should be something that brings us together, that, that helps us learn about each other, that draws on our different cultures, our different backgrounds, that helps start new conversations and open ways of communicating that maybe haven't been there before. So I'm really excited about this role. One of the things I do want to mention one of those roles of those regional chefs will be to start liaising with local culinary schools and programs in those areas that are pushing the envelope and, and doing more and more with culinary to be able to be extern internship sites for culinary students to start exposing them to this career path because not all schools, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but a lot of schools, you know, they still focus on getting those stars and they don't talk about institutional cooking or commercial cooking in, in the the viable job paths that are here in child nutrition. I mean, most of the time you're, you're either a full year employee or you're a nine month employee. Most of the time you're getting benefits. You've got status or, you know, a static job, a steady income coming in. It's reliable. Restaurants come and go. Most restaurants aren't giving you benefits. This is a great place to come and have impact, still work on your trade and have a, a sustainable life. You're not working the buffet on Christmas anymore. I mean, those are things to think about. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks for going on that tangent with me. Um, oh, yeah. My it's pleasure. A, that show is such, it, it's so all-encompassing. And so, like so many of my friends watch that. So many of the people I engage with watch that. And so it really is, a, it's even a great conversation point for this field, for school nutrition, and to talk about what the differences are and the sense of purpose. And so I appreciate you following that trail with me. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think just a quick final note on that. I mean, you, you yeah. see the lead character's arc in his character development, right? And there's a lot of pieces that he's very talented. He understands the kitchen mechanics of a restaurant, but he doesn't understand the budgets, right? He's always like mm-hmm. knocking his head against the wall. Like, what do you mean this costs this much? What do you mean? Those are those pieces I thought were really important to understand early on understanding those management pieces, understanding how to read a PL, understanding the business before I even tried to launch into doing anything on my own. Like use a proving ground where you can learn those things and make some mistakes and be able to recoup without costing people their careers and jobs and livelihoods. So that's my take. <laughs> well, thanks again so much for joining me. Thanks for making your time. It's great yeah, to absolutely. talk with you. And uh, if you're out in San Diego, if you come out here and see Eric or whoever, let's get together. That'd be fun. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. Thank you so much for having me today. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, man. Thanks for asking me some questions. It's a nice to be on the other side of the mic. <laughs> you got it. I hope you enjoy that conversation with Chef Patrick Garmon. I also hope you'll take advantage of the amazing resources that he and his colleagues at the Institute of Child Nutrition have developed and are continually rolling out. Visit theicn.org to access all of those resources and check out the iBytes podcast. Please consider subscribing to this show and leaving us a five-star review to help others find the podcast. And if you need help marketing your school nutrition program, visit dunktankmarketing.com and set up a free, no-obligation consultation call to see how to level up your marketing today. Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for more from the School Meal Marketing Podcast from Dunk Tank Marketing. Oh,